What was on Jesus' heart and mind as He addressed His followers for the very last time here on this earth? What was His final charge, His closing challenge to His disciples before He ascended into heaven? Well, fortunately, the Bible leaves no room for doubt on this matter. All four Gospels, along with the book of Acts, record His final Words. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Luke 24, verses 46 through 48. This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to all nations. You are witnesses of these things. John 20, verse 21, As the Father has sent Me, I am sending you. Acts 1, verse 8, You will be My witnesses to the ends of the earth. So what was on Jesus' heart and mind as He addressed His followers for the last time here on this earth? Evangelism. (laughs) Sharing the good news with others. I wonder, could it be that we have lost sight of this primary mission in the church? Could it be that we have forgotten the sense of urgency for evangelism that Jesus intended? Could it be that we have replaced our zeal and passion for reaching the lost with an attitude of apathy, complacency? Could it be that we have turned our focus inward on maintaining the church rather than outward on expanding the church? Could it be that we've become keepers of an aquarium rather than fishers of men? Could it be that we have allowed Jesus' great commission to become the great omission? This morning, we begin a new series of lessons, Rediscovering Evangelism. During the four Sundays in February, we're going to turn up the heat on this purpose of evangelism. Call it what you will, sharing our faith, witnessing, reaching the lost. We're going to take a fresh, in-depth look at Jesus' last words, His commission to us, His followers. Now, I've subtitled this Rediscovering Evangelism series, What the Bible Teaches About Being Salt and Light. Why? Because this is one of the primary metaphors that Jesus used when teaching us about evangelism, salt and light. So follow along in your Bible as I read a few verses. Matthew chapter 5, we're in the Sermon on the Mount here. We pick it up with verse 13. Jesus teaches, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Rediscovering evangelism. What the Bible teaches about being salt and light. This morning, I want us to jump into this new series by redefining evangelism. Because frankly, I believe that there are some things about evangelism that we have misunderstood. We've been misguided, I believe, when it comes to our view of evangelism. And therefore, I would like to redefine evangelism, to take a fresh, in-depth look at what the Bible actually teaches us about the sharing of our faith with others. Now to begin redefining evangelism, let's be sure we understand the prerequisite to evangelism. Before we can even begin to start redefining evangelism, we must, we absolutely must understand this. We must be good news before we can share good news. We must be good news before we can share good news. Sometimes I believe we have overlooked this prerequisite. Our definitions of evangelism often focus on our actions. <laughs> Such as, you know, preaching a sermon, handing out a tract, sharing a testimony, uh, making a gospel presentation. is about what we do. <laughs> but we must be good news before we can really share Good news. Now, having said that, I will admit that evangelism is verbalization. In the book of Acts, especially, the focus of evangelism is on the message, the good news itself. Acts 2, verse 41. Those who accepted the message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Acts 4, verse 4. But many who heard the message believed, and the number grew to about 5,000. Acts 6, verse 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. Acts 8, verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So why was verbalization of the good news emphasized in the book of Acts? Because the hearts of the hearers were prepared. Those who responded to the message in the book of Acts were primarily Jews or God-fearing Gentiles who already had receptive hearts. The foundation had already been laid. They understood enough about who God is and about God's plan for mankind that they were ready to hear the good news. And so evangelism in the book of Acts is largely verbalization. It's the message. However, evangelism is also visualization. When you go beyond the book of Acts and you move into the epistles, the focus of evangelism shifts from the message to the messenger. Read Philippians 1 and verse 27 out loud with me. Let's read this together. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Isn't that interesting? Conduct yourselves. It's about living it. 
1 Peter 2 verse 12 puts it this way, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. In Titus 2 verses 3 through 10, Paul lays out this visualization principle so clearly. He says, Teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands, so that, don't miss this, no one will malign the Word of God. Similarly, encourage young men to be self-controlled in everything. Set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything. To try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. See it? Why was visualization of the good news emphasized in the epistles? Because the hearts of the hearers were unprepared. Once the good news crossed over to the pagans, if you will, to the secularized, then the method of evangelism had to change. The message was still the same, but the method had to change because the people were non-receptive. They didn't have that spiritual background. They were not ready to hear the good news. They needed to see it visualized first before they were ready to hear it verbalized. Now let me just say, This is exactly, in most cases, where we are in our culture today. When I first began in ministry, 40-some years ago, there were some assumptions that I could make. God was pretty much accepted (laughs) in this country. People, pretty much all of them, had had some church experience growing up. And I could go talk to somebody about Jesus with some assumptions that they believed in the Bible, that they believed there is a God, that they believed Jesus Christ, well, was somebody anyway. And I could begin to share with them verbally, and they were ready to hear. That is not true in our culture today. People have no idea who God is. And they certainly don't have a basic faith in the Bible. And Jesus? Well, that's a whole question in and of itself. And so before I can start talking to them about Jesus, many times they have to see Jesus in me first. This then is the prerequisite to evangelism. We must be good news before we can ever share good news. More often than not, in today's world, the gospel must be visualized before it can ever be verbalized. The pagan, you see, must first believe the messenger before he or she will believe the message. Now with this prerequisite in mind, then, we come to the process of evangelism. As we continue to redefine evangelism, I believe we need to change how we look at this whole process of evangelism. We have mistakenly looked at evangelism as a decision. 
or an event or a moment in time. We thought of evangelism as a point in time when we do something like hand out a track or present the gospel or offer an altar call or even more so we've defined evangelism as a point in time when an unbeliever does something like believes in Christ or prays a prayer or comes to the altar or whatever. However, I believe that the Bible teaches us that evangelism is actually a process. It is in fact leading an unbeliever from wherever he or she is right now through a series of many decisions until he or she becomes a maturing and multiplying Christ follower. I want you to think about that for a minute. It is leading an unbeliever from wherever he or she now is through a series of many decisions until he or she becomes a maturing and multiplying Christ follower. The Apostle Paul talked about this process of evangelism when he wrote his first letter to the church in Corinth. They were squabbling over whose ministry was more important. Was it Paul's or was it Apollos's? Some were even taking sides over the issue. And Paul rebukes them. He corrects them with these words in 1 Corinthians 3. Who do you think Paul is anyway? Or Apollos, for that matter. Servants, both of us. Servants who waited on you as you gradually learn to entrust your lives to our mutual Master. See that? We each carried out our servant assignment. I planted the seed, Apollos watered the plants, but God made you grow. It's not the one who plants or the one who waters is at the center of this process, but God who makes things grow. Planting and watering are menial servant jobs at minimum wages. What makes them worth doing is the God we are serving. You happen to be God's field in which we are working. Or to put it another way, you are God's house. Using the gift God gave me as a good architect, I design blueprints. Apollos is putting up the walls. Great illustration, isn't it? Again, to understand that As evangelists, and all of us are evangelists, understand that? It's something we are, it's not something we do. As an evangelist, we may come into the process of evangelism at different places in a person's life. We may be like the Apostle Paul and be planting the initial seed in somebody's heart. Or me, maybe a little further along in the process, God brings us to intersect with a person's life and we're there to water the seed that's already been planted. Or to pull a few weeds. <laughs> Pour out a little fertilizer. Till the ground around it. You know what I'm saying? And you might even be there sometimes at the moment in which that person's ready to hear the good news and you have the opportunity to actually verbalize that to them. And they make a decision. Doesn't happen real often. But sometimes you're there at that moment. Sometimes you're there after they've made the decision and you still have a responsibility as an evangelist to them to bring them along in their new faith. To make sure they get planted in a local congregation. To make sure they put down some roots. To make sure that they begin to grow and mature and that they themselves become a multiplying follower of Christ as they become involved in the process of evangelism and sharing the good news with others. Am I making sense here? Yes. What I'm talking about? Again, 
Evangelism is a process leading an unbeliever from where he or she now is through a series of many decisions until they become a maturing and multiplying Christ follower. Perhaps the, the chart that I put in your notes and the images that I've displayed up here will help to illustrate this a little bit better. See the guy over here clear on the left? <laughs> is the pagan. Doesn't know anything about the Bible. Doesn't know anything about God. Kind of living his or her own life. And you begin to live your life before them. This is visualization, you see. And they begin to kind of question things. and Might even question you. What is it you've got that I don't have? Explain this to me. And you get a chance to you know, plant some seed. And, 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 and that seed begins to grow and it's God again who makes it grow in their heart until they kind of come to a place where you know it's beginning to make sense and the light bulb kind of goes off. and They want to know, how do I become a Christ follower? And you get a chance then to verbalize how somebody comes to Christ. And as you verbalize that, they may or may not make a decision at that point, but the seed is planted even more firmly and fertilized and watered a bit. And, and, but there comes a point in time where they come to the cross and they actually bow their knee before Jesus and they say, I, I give up my will. I surrender who I am. I want Jesus to be the forgiver and the leader of my life. And they make that commitment, that initial commitment to become a Christ follower. Well, it's not over yet. I mean, they're rejoicing in their new life. <laughs> but they, you know, don't understand yet that they need to plug into a local congregation and they need to put some roots down and they need to get involved in their own personal Bible study and in some Bible study groups and connect with other Christians and, and that they need to, you know, really, really get serious about this. And so you have the opportunity and the responsibility to draw alongside them to make sure that that happens. And, and then eventually they're like this last guy, they're running after Jesus, man. They are fully sold out. They are in a relentless pursuit of a relationship with Jesus Christ. See. Again, does that help a little bit for us to understand? We may be involved at any moment or several moments in this process. But every one of those places where we intersect with that person is evangelism. Every one of them. Again, we need to see evangelism as a process. Let me summarize this process of evangelism by redefining evangelism this way. This is sharing our faith. This is witnessing. This is reaching the lost. It involves at least these four steps, I think. The first step is caring. What did Jesus say? We've got to love our neighbor like ourselves, right? And this is where the emphasis is on our presence in the life of the unbeliever. <laughs> That's why it's so wrong for us to remove ourselves into the holy huddle so far <laughs> that we come together and all we're around is other Christians. All of our friends are Christians. We have no relationships with those who don't know Christ. That's wrong. We've got to intentionally and purposefully make sure that we are building relationships with those who do not yet know Christ. <laughs> And I know that the tendency is the longer you've been a Christian, the less non-Christian friends you have. But we have got to reach out to this world because salt cannot do anything unless it has contact. 
Light doesn't have any effect if it's not in the darkness. And so, through caring, through the presence of the believer in the life of the unbeliever, the good news is visualized. And that's where we speak to the heart, the emotions of the unbeliever as we build a caring and loving relationship with them. Step number two then comes, communicating. We ultimately earn the right, quite honestly, to make a presentation of the Gospel where the good news is verbalized. And this is where we speak to the mind or the intellect of the unbeliever as we share the claims of Christ with him or her from the Bible. Which then brings step three, eventually converting. And the emphasis here is on the persuasion of the unbeliever to make a life-changing commitment to follow Jesus as the forgiver and the leader of his or her life. This is where we speak to the will of the unbeliever, allowing the Holy Spirit to do His work in bringing them to conviction and then ultimately to action as they bow their knee to Jesus Christ. And we're part of this conversion process. Now I understand the Holy Spirit's the one who brings the conversion. You understand that, right? We cannot do the Holy Spirit's work for Him, nor should we try. However, we are involved in this process. I remember having a conversation a few years back with a guy who'd been coming to church and it's pretty regularly. And finally one day I had lunch with him and I just looked at him and I said, Dwayne, man, you're acting like a Christian. You're kind of smelling like a Christian. <laughs> you're talking like a Christian. But you're not a Christian. Why are you not why have you never made this commitment to follow Christ? Why have you never officially said, God, I want you to be my God. Jesus, I want you. I'm throwing myself on your mercy at the cross. Why have you never said that? And he looked at me and he said, because nobody's ever asked me. Hmm. <laughs> well, guess what I did? <laughs> I asked him. <laughs> and right then and there, he gave his heart and life to Jesus. Still walking with Jesus to this day. A very... Famous business person, if I told you his whole name, you may know him. Which brings us then to the final step, which is completing. And the emphasis here is on the participation of the new believer in the community of believers, connecting with the local church. And this is where we speak to the whole person, teaching and training him or her to live a faithful and a fruitful life. This is a lifelong thing. People have to understand. It's not a one-time decision. It's not a come to the altar and bang, it's all over with. You know, I prayed a prayer. I said, Jesus, I receive You as my Savior. I don't have anything else I need to do. If you believe that, then you're not believing the Bible. Because when I read the Bible, it's all about a lifelong process. It's all about a relationship with Jesus day after day after day after day until He comes again or we die, whichever happens first. And I think part of our responsibility as evangelists is to explain that to people. Yes. Jesus did. Yes, he, did. he called them to accountability about that. How many times did He say, this is not about a free lunch right after He fed the, fed the you know, 5,000. This is not about a free lunch, folks. If you're looking for a free lunch, you've come to the wrong place because this is about follow me and there's a cost to follow me, Jesus said. And it said a bunch of people left at that point because Jesus wasn't interested in decisions. Jesus was interested, and still is, in disciples. Yes. It's not a one-time decision. It's a whole life-long process that we're involved in here. So this then 
is the process of evangelism. Leading an unbeliever from wherever he or she now is through a series of many decisions until he or she becomes a maturing and multiplying Christ follower. And basically then, I think evangelism is a lifelong process involving these four steps. Caring, communicating, converting, and completing. And we are involved in all of those steps as we love people. Which brings us to our final main point today, and that's the promise in evangelism. As we're redefining evangelism this morning, we've talked about the prerequisite to evangelism. We must be good news before we can ever share good news. And the process, leading an unbeliever from wherever he or she is now through a series of many decisions until he or she becomes a maturing and multiplying Christ follower. And as we're looking afresh at this biblical evangelism, I want to conclude today's lesson by reminding us of Jesus' twofold promise. Because <laughs> I think this is so important for us to have this in mind from the very beginning, and that's why I share it in this first lesson. First of all, we have the promise of His power. In the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 and 19, Jesus said, All authority... How much authority? I just want to make sure you heard that. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Again, how much authority has been given to Jesus? Yeah, and He gives that authority to us. (laughs) And it's in His authority, in His name, because He has all the power that we can go with confidence and courage. And how does that power come to us? Through the Holy Spirit. We've been learning about that in our... Bible class on Sunday morning. Luke 24, verse 49, Jesus instructed His followers, stay in the city, Jerusalem, until you've been clothed with power from on high. Acts 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And this same Holy Spirit power that was promised to the disciples is still available to us today. <laughs> Read 2 Timothy chapter 1 verses 6 through 8. These are some words from Paul to his apprentice Timothy. Listen to what it says. Let's read these together. Stir up the inner fire which God gave you, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power. So never be ashamed of bearing witness to our Lord. Amen to that. Yeah. We're going in His power. It's the promise of His power. The second is the promise of His presence. Immediately after commissioning us in Matthew 28 and verse 19, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Jesus went on to assure us in verse 20, and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Not only does Jesus promise us His power, but He promises us His presence. As we go. Now again, we can go with confidence and courage knowing that Jesus Himself has promised that He'll never ever leave us or forsake us. In fact, as we go with His presence, guess what? People will begin to see Jesus in us. They'll know that there's something unique, or more correctly, someone unique living in and through us. That's what happened to Peter and John. Remember that? Acts 4 verse 13, after Peter and John had testified boldly of Jesus to the Jewish leaders, it says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they were astonished. 
And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Boy, isn't that what you desire for your life? It's what I desire for my life. I don't want them to see me. I want them to see Jesus. <laughs> I want them to look at me and go, wow, what is it in you? Oh, it's Jesus. I recognize that. Jesus is alive and well. He's visualized in our lives. This then is the promise of evangelism. The promise of Jesus' power and of Jesus' presence as we go. Rediscovering evangelism. What the Bible teaches about being salt and light. This morning we've taken a closer look at redefining evangelism. From the prerequisite to evangelism, let's remember we must be good news before we can ever share good news. Evangelism in truth is both verbalization and visualization. In today's world, more often than not, the pagan must first believe the messenger before he or she is ever ready to believe the message. And from the process of evangelism, let's remember that evangelism is in fact a process leading an unbeliever from wherever he or she now is through a series of many decisions until he or she becomes a maturing and multiplying Christ follower. And from the promise in evangelism, let's remember that when we go, Jesus promises His power and His presence. We can have confidence and courage to share our faith with others.